Coming to you from Burbank, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm speaking with Scott Timberg. He is the co-editor of The Misread City, New Literary Los Angeles, as well as the new book, Culture Crash, The Killing of the Creative Class. Scott, you've written so much about music, so let me start off with this. It's an experience people have been having a lot lately, I think, and it relates to the thesis of your book. So in the, say, early 1960s, somebody would have looked at the top ten singles, all the names of them, read each name of each song, every song would have put a song into their head. They could recognize all the songs in the top ten. Early 90s, maybe they could recognize most of them, or some anyway. By 2015, the top ten singles is now, it's now a niche. I, I think you're luck, anybody's lucky, even kids, are lucky to be able to identify three or four out of the ten. Uh, most people I know probably couldn't identify any on the top ten. What does this have something to do, as I suspect, with your thesis? Well, mu- music may be the you know pop music, let's call it pop music, rock and roll, uh, etc. May, may have changed more than than any of the other uh, subjects. I you know the other fields. You know, I write about architecture. I write about publishing and fiction and bookstores. I write about um, visual art, uh, etc. You know, let me think. Pop music has, you know, you, you think of the, the early 60s, you know, the sort of era before the Beatles, you know, compared to now. And there's just been enormous, you know, it's been less than uh, le- less than 50 years and things, things have turned upside down in all kinds of ways. Here's a salient difference, though, for my, you know, book. You've had all these stylistic changes. You had psychedelia, you had punk, you had post-punk, you had uh, disco, uh, alt-country, etc. But, you know, the, the biggest difference is that you had a network of labels, which, which after a while became independent labels, which are extremely important, you know, for soul music, for indie rock, for alt country specifically. And you had obviously a, a network of clubs, you know, especially say in the eighties, you had clubs that grew up that, that alternative rock, you know, uh, bands, the replacements and black flag and the pixies and bands like that. Uh, you know, this, you had zines, you had uh, rock critics, which rock criticism really started in the, the mid to late 60s. You, you, you had sort of uh, an, an ecosystem that grew up around rock and roll that, that allowed it to deepen. And, 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 and like any ecosystem, it became interdependent. So, so part, of, part, of what, um, part of what happened in, in the best of times, it's never been perfect. Making a living as a musician has, has always, or any kind of artist, has always been been difficult. But part of what you had was a way that people who were interested in music and interested in finding out the best of it or finding something that suited their taste could be guided toward something that they would like or love. One thing, one sort of institution that did that was um, the record store, and you know the record store clerk. I learned a lot about music. I mean, I write about music professionally now, uh, but I learned a lot about it from hanging out in record stores with people who are obsessed with this stuff, and uh, often they were obsessed with an individual subcategory or something, but, um, you know, they loved the tradition that came out of Hank Williams, or they loved, you know, Mahler and, like, really heavy, you know, Germanic symphonies or or whatever. But but these people were passionate, informed, and uh, and sort of erudite in, in, in their way. I worked at a record store at a Tower Records uh, back east in the early 90s during the first Bush recession and, and learned a lot from, you know, the, the, my coworkers as well as the employee discount, which allowed me to 
just buy a ton of you know Sonny Rollins records or Richard Thompson records or or or, or whatever. Um, so, so so that network worked. I mean that I mean it eventually didn't work financially, but as far as a way to guide people and and, and draw people into sort of being passionate music lovers, the record store, the people who worked there, was an important. Um, Sort of important institution. The other thing, again, was the the music press or the rock press, which started with you know, Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone, and 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 and, and you know you could say the alternative press, Boston Phoenix, Village Voice, L.A. Weekly, etc. Was, was in some ways an extension of of the of the rock, you know, of, of, of sort of the, the the Rolling Stone, you know, and rock press. You had zines, uh, which were you know free, um, you know free. Uh, uh, publications that wrote about music. I wrote for, for for a lot of those and made exactly zero money, but got to meet musicians and and uh, uh, you know engage with with things I loved. So you know there was and again not to mention labels. I mean th- th- there were labels that people could swear by. I think Blue Note, for instance, in the the fifties and sixties, the jazz label was, was a label that that people trusted. Blue Note. You know if if there was a, a trumpeter or a or, or a saxophonist they hadn't heard of, they could pick up something on Blue Note. Uh, Stax Volt, the soul label is that way. These days, I think, you know, I think none such, the kind of eclectic um, classical jazz, et cetera, label has that role. Merge, which is a Chapel Hill-based uh, indie rock label. You know, again, this, 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 this world hasn't, you know, Matador is a very good label, um, one of my favorites. Uh, based in New York, uh, rough trade in England. I mean, this this world has not died completely. It still exists in in patches. But uh, what I what I mean is that to follow music has gotten so much harder. There's so much more stuff going on, good, bad, in between. You know, a million different genres. You have electronica. You have uh, you know Nashville country. You know everything in between. Justin Bieber. You know, et cetera. You still have indie rock bands. Uh, as well, Bell and Sebastian, Sleater Kennedy, the Decembrists, etc. You have Flying Lotus here in Los Angeles, so it's big and it's 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 rich and complex, which is good. But I but I constantly hear from people, and not just people like me in their forties, but people who love music, sort of at all you know, all ages, all types of tastes, that they're just lost as to what to get. So they 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 ask me what, what you know, what should I find? What am I missing? And uh, I, you know, the, the age of the internet has offered a lot of good things, but we're sort of, it, it certainly has offered a sense of, of sensory overload. I think whatever your, your taste is, whatever your stake in this is, it, it's very easy to get overwhelmed with information. And again, that's why having a rock magazine, like, you know, Spin used to be something that people of my generation looked to, even if we, you know, got frustrated at this or that review. It was still, it still provided a kind of common language for people to, to talk about it. Uh, you, again, you had, you know, a Tower Records or an indie record store where, where they would get behind a local artist or, or, or someone, some, someone interesting from England or, or whatever, and, and those clerks and, and the way the store was set up could sort of guide you to certain things. These days, it's kind of a, a free-for-all. Some people think it's better. To me, it's, it's no substitute for the, the old structures. Mm. It's... One of sort of two halves of the point to be made in this book, Culture Crash, which is that it's harder to navigate the cultural world. There's so much out there, be it books, music, film, or the newer media out more recently. There's that, but then there's also there's also the observation in the book that it's 
it's harder to be a cultural creator or any type of cultural worker than ever. So you have this combination of abundance and great difficulty. You know, which which side of this came to you first as something to write about? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you've you've summed it up right. I mean, it, it's a a sort of I mean, every, you know, every period of, of history or cultural history is full of tensions and contradictions and and overlapping. Uh, you know, kind of simultaneous overlapping elements that can be hard to reconcile and and figure out. But um, you know, the, the the theme of my book is mostly about making a living in culture. I mean, the you know, the, the, and so the theme of my book it's about the creative class, which is a group that I define as not just you know a classical composer or uh, a, a you know an abstract painter. Uh, but, uh, or an architect, but it's, it's the people along the way. You know, it's the publicist at the record label. It's, uh, someone in a newspaper who writes about, uh, visual art. It's, uh, the woman who works at the, um, at the bookstore who recommends, you know, a poet she loves. You know, it's, it's, it's people who sort of make the wheels of, of culture turn. Uh, and, you know, so, so I'm looking, I'm mostly looking at the way those people's lives and careers are increasingly shattered by all these technological, economic, and, and sort of social changes. I mean, the, the, again, the so the big idea of my book is is that when artists and craftsmen can't make a living, we all pay the price. That it's not just about the consumer experience. That that what happens inside that ecology I've described has obviously implications for, for those people when they lose their jobs, when the video store, <clears throat> like here in Los Angeles, Vidiots goes out right. of business, uh, you know, when a newspaper uh, critic loses his or her job, which is something that I and hundreds of people I know have gone through, obviously it has implications for people like us, very tangible implications. But it also has a larger cultural uh, echo, uh, which which is more intangible. It takes a little more time to sink in. But, but these are the things I'm writing about. And... You know the the abundance is is you know the, the situation you describe is is good for some people if you own you know if you're a shareholder or on the board at a Silicon Valley you know uh, you know Yahoo Google Apple it's great you know these really are the best of all worlds and no no wonder we keep hearing from them and and the, the sort of house organs of Silicon Valley uh, and and the sort of techno utopians and magazines like Wired and and so on that. That it's a blast, it's awesome, it's great. You know, sure. You know, if if, if you own one, of, if you have a stake in one of these companies, you're a millionaire before your twenties are out. You know, for people working in culture at, you know, the kind of middle level again, musicians, novelists whose advances have been cut in half, uh, uh, often architects whose firms have been destroyed or, or gobbled up by a, by a corporate firm. Uh, again, a, a bookstore, record store clerk who, who, whose shop has gone under because of Amazon or something. Things are not so good. So I, so I wrote the book out of a sense of, 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 of crisis. It was something that I'd observed kind of around the edges a little bit. I was concerned but didn't really hit home until, until I got uh, hammered by these changes as well. So it was really written out of a sense that, that there was a larger ecological catastrophe and uh, it, it crossed over all these different art forms, you know, literature, music, uh, visual art, and, and, and on and on. You mentioned video stores and vidiots, of course, here in Los Angeles. And 
It was fascinating because reading your book, I was reading the story of Rocket Video mm, that you right, tell on there, which right. went, went under before I came to Los Angeles, so right. I didn't really have any first-hand experience of it. But while reading that, I was saying to myself, geez, I wonder how long Vidiots is going to last. And the very next day came the yeah. announcement they were going to close. But it also reminded me they've been around 30 years, which is mm-hmm. completely astonishing for a video store, a video store to have been around 30 years. I mean, why? When... But you, of course, you, you, you posted about this on your blog, and other people have been posting about it everywhere, uh, lamenting uh, the end of the Vidiot's era. But I wonder, what, what are they lamenting when they lament that? Hmm. Well, you know, you make a good point that Vidiot's survived a lot longer than, than these others. I mean, it survived the rise of, of Blockbuster. It survived um, Netflix. It survived the economic crash. It survived streaming, you know, content on Amazon and on and on. Um, the thing about Vidiot's and, you know, which is just a, a great video store in Santa Monica run by, you know, really passionate, informed film lovers there's a place that I used to go to when I worked in West L.A. called Cinephile, which, which I think has been sold but is still there. Uh, Rocket was a place I, I used to frequent, and, and I interview the one of the managers of, of Rocket in, in, in my Rocket video in my book. You know, it's some of these places, Vidiots in Pacific, offered more than just um, more than just places to rent, a, a, you know, a DVD. Uh, Rocket offered um, screenings. It offered um, uh, the, uh, the, the they offered a series of benefits uh, where David O. Russell or Angelica Houston or you know some actor or director would come to the the, the shop and speak and, and you know sign books or whatever. Uh, fans got to got to meet these people, uh, so they were real gathering places. And and you know Los Angeles has traditionally had trouble with with public spaces and with with sort of, uh, you know, co- community, you know, sort of community gathering spots, partly because of the size and because it's, the city has been obsessed with private spaces. And, and uh, uh, anyway, so a place like Vidiot's or Rocket or Book Soup or Amoeba or whatever are places where like-minded people could gather to talk about culture. And in, again, in some cases, it, it would be something like an in-store, you know, Paul McCartney or the Delgados or something like that. Coming to Amoeba to play a, a, a short, you know, uh, free set, you know, uh, or again, it could be a, a screening of an, of an oddball movie at, at Vidiot's. And uh, I think people like, you, you know, having these. I mean, not everybody, obviously, um, and sometimes they're 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 not. Uh, sometimes their ardor is not enough to save these places. But I think people like having. Uh, cultural zealots in their neighborhood and they like having these spaces in their city you know they like having a place where where people can gather and uh and talk about buy and sell movies books uh records and you know they also do something um again what you know i call this i call this an ecology because there are a lot of different they all these elements connect in unpredictable and sort of rich ways the way you know, the way Greenwich Village works and, you know, Jane Jacobs' books, you know, you see this sort of, uh, this kind of urban, uh, this sort of urban complexity when, when, when she would write about the, the way a, a village street would work. You know, they, they also train and educate uh, artists, you know. I mean, Quentin Tarantino got his, his education, 
I don't think he went to college at all. He got his education at a video store in Manhattan Beach. Uh, Jonathan Lethem, the, the novelist, you know, worked at Moe's Books in, in Berkeley and other uh, bookstores and, and got to know, you know, got to deepen his knowledge of, of literature and criticism and all this stuff. I, Lethem didn't graduate college, but he came out of those years, you know, with a deep connection to this stuff. Patty Smith worked at The Strand. Uh, Lucinda Williams worked at Rockaway. Uh, books, uh, uh, sorry, Rockaway Records in Silver Lake. Uh, Alejandro Escovedo, one of my favorite Texas musicians, worked at Waterloo Records in Austin. Uh, a lot of punk uh, rockers worked at bookstores and record stores. Uh, Peter Buck of REM, et cetera, et cetera. So these places serve a lot of different functions. When they disappear, it's all gone. It's interesting you mentioned Jonathan Lethem because he was on this podcast a few months ago talking about just that, his experience working at bookstores. And he described why that's no longer a viable way up for someone like him. Partial, not really blaming the internet, but describing it more in terms of how inconvenient it was to find a book you wanted to find in those days. You had to rely on the Jonathan Lethems of the world. You had to mail out, and I, this is a still something I have trouble believing, mail out letters to the book dealers you happen to know of, say, if you ever get this book in, can you sell it to me? I'm sure you're not going to get a favorable price with that method. I mean... That degree of inconvenience, it's sort of, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine that now, to put your mind yeah. back to doing that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. One, I remember, uh, this would have been maybe 25 years ago, I think I was home from college, and I was back at my, my little town in uh, Maryland, and um, I wanted to get a, a, like a Lorca, like a book of Lorca poetry or, or, or something, and um uh, a certain, obviously, English translation. And, uh, and and back then, there was a small, locally-owned bookstore in my town that was delighted, you know, a small, really small town that was delighted to order this for me. But I think it took, you know, like two weeks or, or something for them to get this in. Oh so, you know, that's the kind of thing. And, and I think I've had experiences with, with albums, uh, you know, CDs or vinyl, you know, records, you know, for, that, you know, uh, the convenience is great, um, the, but we, you know, we, you're right. We live in a world where we expect everything all the time. You know, you order something, you know, we, everything now. You know, the world has sped up and our expectations have sped up. And, uh, and, and those sort of intangible things, like what we expect from the world, uh, are as powerful and as sort of decisive as economic and technological change. I mean, they all sort of work together. So yeah, the idea of filling out a piece of paper and dropping it in the mail and <laughs> and so on, it's it's you know, it's like we're sort of living in these days we're kind of living in three different eras at once. You can still see um the old world kind of glimmering out, but we have this new world where everything arrives instantaneously. Right. And and again, I love the convenience as much as anybody, but when it when it starts to put institutions I care about out of business or it starts to uh uh, kill jobs that passionate middle-class culture lovers have, you know, jobs that keep culture people employed, then uh, I start to uh, to see the dark side of, of, of all of, of, you know, this bounty. Yeah, and I think everybody, to some degree, sees the dark side, because even someone who's really lamenting the loss of Rocket Video or of or of Vidiots, or of, say, Dutton's uh, bookstore yeah. you mentioned that was in Brentwood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people who, or, or you know, of their local newspaper, yeah, music store, yeah. they have to face the fact that no one took it away from them. They sort of took it away from themselves, only in a small part. No one, right. no one cultural consumer 
destroyed uh, rocket video or what have mm-hmm. you. But it's no it's no one's responsibility but the people who stopped patronizing these places, these institutions, right? I mean, there's there's sure Amazon has some business practices that maybe we would question, but we still buy from Amazon, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I agree halfway. I mean, and, and I uh, this this stuff obviously saddens me a lot, but I, I don't really blame the person who, the busy person who doesn't have time to go to the local indie record store. I wish that person would. I wish I could could do it more often. Uh, I, I think people. I, I hope people will change their habits as this message goes gets out. Uh, the message that you know, it's not just my message. There, there are a lot of people, or at least a, a, a sort of you know, earnest handful of us who are, you know, Jaron Lanier, Astra Taylor, Nicholas Carr, you know, there's a handful of us who, who are, who are trying to, to make some noise. So I do hope people change their habits, but I don't really blame the sort of busy consumer, especially, you know, parents who, who have, who are already juggling 10 plates and, and don't have time to, to support the local indie video. So I will say, I don't, I don't, where I guess I disagree with, 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 with some people on this though is, I don't think it's inevitable, and I don't think it's, you know, just sort of like a uh, the Lord works in, mysteri- in, mm-hmm. in mysterious ways kind of thing, or oh, this is the way the marketplace works, or we live in a in a new technological uh, structure, and we have to obey the the edict of of, of the mighty microchip. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, technological and economic change is, is powerful and hard to resist, but there's still ways to have an ethical and sustainable kind of relationship to it, and you know, for instance, <clears throat> you know, why were the, the, the bookstores crushed by Amazon? It's partly because Amazon was convenient and fast and all that stuff. But it's it's also because Amazon had a deal with the government that meant it didn't have to pay sales taxes. So when Amazon, and you didn't have to pay sales tax when you ordered it from Amazon, but if you got it at Skylight, BookSoup, Dutton's, uh, Wordsworth Books in, in Cambridge, Mass., or or any of these places... Uh, they had to pay sales tax. So who do you think is going to win that one? You know, the federal government gave, uh, has a contract, I think it's $600 million or something like that, uh, to Amazon for sort of cloud computing. I mean, (laughs) you know, human beings make choices. I mean, we haven't been totally automated yet. We may be headed there, but human beings and governments and regulatory, you know, uh, 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 departments, you know, Department of Justice sided with Amazon over, uh, over, uh, you know, publishers. Uh, they, you know, well, anyway, it's, uh, it's partly because of choices that we have made. Uh, and, and by we, I don't just mean voters and consumers. I mean, the politicians we elect, I mean, slashing arts education from public schools, which goes back to the early nineties and has only picked up speed since then. Uh, is a choice that we made. Our values changed, and we elected politicians that said one thing and not politicians said the other, school boards, et cetera. You know, why do hedge fund guys pay less in taxes than you and I do? You know, why does Warren Buffett's secretary pay a smaller percentage, you know, than he does? He's one of the richest men in the country. It's partly because of money and power. So I don't and, and all those things, all these economic issues, you know, the fact that the finance class has taken over cities and, and downtowns and former Bohemian neighborhoods like Greenwich Village and and San, you know, much of San Francisco and Berkeley and <clears throat> name a city, and the, the bankers have taken over the place where there used to be record stores and middle class consumer people. I was just in in New York. I was in D.C. It's happening 
you know, all over the place. So it's not just like, well, it's inevitable. We have globalization. We have technology. You need to move out of the way and let the, 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 the really strong, you know, survival of the fittest, let the sort of virile people take over. No, it's because, it's because, you know, cultural people and middle class people don't have that much money and power. Wealthy people, corporations, Wall Street banks, and the 1% do. And we're getting crushed. So, so my argument and my lament for the demise of, of a video store or a musician who can't make a living because royalty rates have collapsed or, or, you know, streaming royalty rates are, are, are so low. Uh, to me, it's all part of the, the, the kind of struggle of, of, you know, the 99 or 99.5 or, or, or whatever, you know, the mo, you know, the majority of us against the top tier of the 1%. It, this stuff is all, uh, is all, all, all tied together. There's also the element of the difficulty of the 21st century, the difficulty the 21st century person has of articulating what they do want. Mm-hmm. They, they can say, even someone who's, you know, pretty happy with the current landscape of the culture they can get, and they, you know, they've maybe got objections to certain businesses or to certain remaining inconveniences, or they miss things from before. Mm-hmm. You can ask them, and I'm sure you've done this plenty. You can ask them, well, what do you, what do you want? What, what ideally, what is your ideal world for the consumption and production of culture? And that's very hard to articulate, isn't it? No one really knows from what I can tell what that would be, right? Well, this, this comes, you know, it may come back in part to the sort of sensory overload issue we were talking about. Um, yeah, I think that's, you know, again, part of the, the intermediary between people, sort of what you could call regular people, consumers, or, uh, or, or sort of people who, who liked or loved music or liked or loved books or something, and the creators, there, there was a connecting class. And again, to some extent, that was the, the, the press and the, you know, the, the, the people who, who, who worked in these places, and those people tried for the most part to serve as sort of honest brokers. And I, I think, again, they helped guide things. As those people are removed and all we have is algorithms and AI, I think it becomes more complicated. But, you know, um, so, 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 you know, two, two thoughts on that, which will seem kind of disparate, but again, it, is, it seems to me all related. First of all, if you ask people what they think an appropriate level of inequality is, you know, people will say, well, there's always going to be rich people and poor people, and, and we hope there'll be a decent group in the middle because we have this vague sense that the middle class is sort of stabilizing and, mm-hmm. and a, it leads to a healthier society. But when you ask people what the proper level of, of inequality is, uh, and this is people across the political spectrum, this isn't just progressives or, or Democrats or whatever, they come up with something that is vastly, vastly more equitable than what we've really got, where we have this incredibly stark sort of steep curve with a tiny number of people at the top, a kind of disappearing, eroding middle class, and a lot of poor people. Uh, it's, you know, we're sort of headed toward a, toward a banana republic uh, uh, arrange, you know, arrangement. It, it, it's uh, even magazines like The Economist, which is hardly a left-wing rag, are worried and concerned about the, the levels of inequality in this country, which are just growing and growing. Uh, so... I think people don't quite now know how bad things are. Again, they might have a vague sense the way I did back in the around, you know, 15 years ago when I heard about Napster and, and how, you know, musicians' revenues were falling. I thought, oh, that's too bad. Hmm, I wonder what I can do. You know, <laughs> but I didn't really engage with it, and, and right. most people didn't. Um, the, the, my, my other thought is that I think there are a lot of people who, who want to support the, the sort of ecosystem. And, and they're not happy to ha- have these places going into business. They're not happy that musicians and, and, 
and graphic designers and so on aren't making, you know, aren't be, are able to make a living anymore. There are some people who get it, and I'm meeting them as I travel around and and and, and talk to people behind the book, and it's been exciting to have have it have the message get through. One thing, it's not the solution to everything, but one way I'd like people to think about this. If you care about musicians, novelists, uh, artists in your community, etc., try to think about it the same way you think about the farmer's market or uh, community-supported agriculture. You know, I, I get a box every – sitting in front of the house. I get a box every couple weeks of vegetables from a, from a farm – uh, not far from here, and you know I can't really uh, afford a very fancy one, but we, we get something regularly that that helps a family farm, not a corporate farm like most of the Central Valley, survive. And we go to farmers markets and and buy you know produce there. A lot of people in urban America and in in small town America do partly because they think the quality is better, but also because they believe in supporting people who do this. And there's this again vague sense that you know small farmers, family farmers are kind of part of the American an important part of the American fabric. Mm-hmm. I think artists, musicians, uh, uh, literary people, etc., are, are part of that too. And if you can put your money into you know, an independent bookstore here in LA, a skylight, a book soup of Romans, etc. Et uh, if, 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 if there are artists, you know, if you care about visual art and there are artists in your city or community, buy a piece of art from them or from a gallery. Uh, you may not be able to afford a, a, a big framed canvas, but you can probably buy a, a signed print, you know, a lithograph, something that might cost a hundred, two hundred dollars. If, if this stuff matters to you, uh, you need to get behind it and you also need to to support politicians who who share your values and care about culture and care about the middle class. Uh, people have individually almost no power unless they are, you know, superstar bankers or something. But together, people can put their sort of put their dollars, put their votes, put their support together and, and make some kind of difference. It's not going to happen immediately. But, you know, the, 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 those of us out here who value these things, who, who care about this, can make can make a positive difference if we all uh, work, you know, in, in our small way toward re- sort of restoring this ecology. And indeed, you write in Culture Crash about how food is one of these areas where, as you say, with farmers markets, with these vegetable boxes, and much more beyond. Besides, I mean, food critics are probably. Well, I, how to put it? I mean, Jonathan Gold is so big Wine here in Los critics, Angeles. Yeah. Wine and food critic, yeah. you know. Robert Parker, Jonathan Gold. Yeah. Yeah. People, good, good writers. Them, you know? Yeah. It's, it seems like you, you, I don't know if you exempt, but you highlight food as an area where people are showing more willingness to culturally engage. Why, why is food the one? Mm-hmm. Great question. You know, the growth of, of food, wine, craft beer, to some extent, you know, sort of small batch, you know, gins and rye and so on is, is, it's interesting, and I, I'll, let me say first of all, this you know I'm happy about all this. I mean, when I was a teenager uh, and in college, beer and 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 and, and all this stuff was, was a lot less uh, it's a lot less pleasing than it is now. And the, the explosion of restaurants in L.A. and and elsewhere. I was just in North Carolina in Asheville and Durham, and, and every bar I went to had you know nine you know they had nine local. Ales and and lagers being brewed, you know, uh, in the same building. It, it, it's great. I'm really happy with it. I guess what um, what I lament though is that um, you know, food and wine and beer are are sort of sensual pleasures, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. But 
but literature and theater and music and these other things did something else. I mean, they did offer and do offer sensual pleasure and, and sort of beauty and, and all of these things. Uh, getting into what, you know, getting at what that something else is, 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 is tricky, but, uh, it seems to me crucial and it seems to me the basis of a lot of, of what's gone wrong here. I mean, there, there used to be a sense that a poem or, you know, a, a, a chamber piece or even a rock and roll song, you know, a Beatles song, a Beach Boys song, a Smokey Robinson song, a, a, a John Coltrane song, uh, w was not just catchy and fun, uh, but there was something that touched the soul about it or, or that uh, provided a window into a sort of deeper reality. You know, like, I, 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 as a high school kid, I read... Line by line in an English class, I read uh, Dubliner's, James Joyce's story collection, and uh, it was just amazing to see how Joyce was, um, was with every little word choice of sentence length, was, was telling you something about that city, about the character at the center of, of the story, but telling you something about you know what we used to call the human condition as well. And as a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, just blew my mind what uh, what just a 15-page short story could do. And, you know, uh, the, you look at Ibsen's plays, which are, um, you know, there's a sort of moral, ethical, social criticism dimension to them. Uh, you know, I could, um, I could, could uh, you, you know, we, we, we could pick, we, I could go on. Um, these days, and again, it's not like that old vision is completely gone, but we've had this... This sort of movement, it, I guess, started in the 60s and 70s. It came from Warhol. It came from the French uh, post-structuralists like Derrida. Uh, it came sort of from Pauline Kael, who's a critic I, whose work I really love. But there was a sort of erosion of the sense that the arts, whatever art it was, really means something. You know, literature becomes about a system of signs. Uh, art to a, to a Warholian is just about the marketplace or about celebrity or about some really hip people hanging out, uh, taking pictures of each other. Um, it, it, the, the, there was not a coordinated assault by any means, but you got a transformation of um, the public sphere, of journalism and criticism, of academia at the high levels, uh, and you know the the and and you know television newspaper you know so so the in the end you you have a situation where the evangelists have stopped evangelizing you know you you needed to have people like Leonard Bernstein going on TV to uh to to talk about how a symphony works uh you had you know James Baldwin on on talk shows you know you had uh in the 50s uh Ann Sexton saw a PBS I think it was a show about how to write a sonnet, you know, and, and, and she, uh, she was a suburban Boston housewife and saw that and it launched her in this sort of brilliant, tormented career a as a poet. You know, you had what I call the middle brow consensus, which, which sort of was the kind of domesticating of modernism or the, uh, you could call it a sort of, you know, serious culture for a mass audience. The paperback revolution was part of this. Uh, that took place for a few decades and then it, then it started to get chipped away by people within the creative class. So this is so. Let's get back to beer for a second. So if you remove all the stuff that makes culture holy, uh, or that that connects it to the soul, if we're just going to 
going to take what we used to call culture and turn it into content, then why not just have a beer instead? You know, and why not have these days, there are really good beers, you know, uh, and why not, instead of majoring in English and laboring as a, uh, you know, laboring in the world of culture, why not um, go to Wall Street? Or why not move to Silicon Valley and try to come up with an app uh, that gets, gets your pizza delivered faster? Uh, when people lose faith in culture and the kind of redeeming, clarifying, deepening work that culture can do, that literature can do, uh, then... Well, there's certainly no economic incentive. And again, the beer is getting better all the time. Uh, and uh, why struggle through an English degree or an apprenticeship at a record store when there's all this other stuff uh, that's easier, quicker, and that will make you vastly, vastly more money? Right. This talk about well, the writing you do about the middlebrow culture, the middlebrow consensus in Culture Crash, it took me back to a book I read in a conversation I had with its author a few years ago. Probably you encountered uh, a great idea at the time by Alex Beam about right. Mortimer Adler and the oh, great, the great, oh, right, the great right, books right. of yes, the. No, I've got to read that. And actually, a, a great idea at the time is a is a phrase that goes through my mind a lot. <laughs> so, so no, I, thank you for reminding me of that. I've got to I've got to read that it's book. Worth yeah. as it, I mean, for somebody who's reading your book, I would oh, say yeah, it's yeah. A, it's probably the best companion you could okay. have to because they yeah. they're both recent books and they cover yeah, the yeah. same. Yes, yeah, so and I, I like his part. writing from the Globe. Yeah, cool. but I was thinking about that book and. Part of what's interesting about that book is it, it covers the, it makes you, it makes, makes me anyway, sort of along a little bit for an era that I never experienced right. of the Middlebrow consensus where you had Leonard Bernstein on TV and people had, in, in general, had some awareness of these elements of culture that are now niche. But as well, I can totally understand why it wasn't, why people might one day say, you know, it's not enough for me to take Mortimer Adler's word that a book is good. What does that even mean? Who is this Mortimer Adler? Why, why are we listening to this guy who happens to be gray-haired and on TV? You know, it's you need you need a reason to believe a, a, a gatekeeper, I guess. Yeah. And I, gatekeepers, I feel like it, maybe more recently, gatekeep, or maybe it's been a long process since the war. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Gatekeepers have not necessarily failed, but a reason to believe a gatekeeper We've lost reasons to believe the gatekeepers. You know why? Maybe even if you looked up to the the video store clerk who seemed to know everything as a kid, you, sometimes you wonder now why why exactly did I take that guy so seriously? You know what I mean? It's what's why have is it? Do we have a good reason or not a good reason to have stopped believing in gatekeepers? I guess. Well, I, I think there's been you know this sort of social changes that I that I talk about in my book, or in some ways the are changing assumptions are kind of the, the subjects that fascinate me the most. And, you know, you had after, there, there's a, a, a great and overlooked book by uh, Peter Biskind, the film critic, called Seeing is Believing, about 50s B-movie science fiction, westerns, uh, gangster uh, films. And he looks at the sort of post-war cult of the expert, you know, and, and you know, this was the era, obviously, of Sputnik and... Uh, uh, the sort of, you know, the worship of science, of the scientist. And, and there was also a sense that government worked, you know, that when the government person uh, told you something that you could probably trust it. Uh, all of these traditional kinds of authority, you know, and, and again, this was an era where you would have profess professors on television sometimes right. talking about things. 
uh, you had, uh, as late as I guess it was the 70s, you had uh, the professor on Gilligan's Island who is sort of a horned dog but also is considered a genuinely smart guy who the the women on the show kind of lusted after. So it worked through pop culture too. I mean it was just a larger set of cultural assumptions that 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 in some ways came out of modernism and, and – were uh, we doubled down on them after, during and after World War II. In Europe and Britain, the, these ideas are in some ways still alive in a way that they aren't here. You can still see Terry Eagleton and people like that on, on British TV, and th- they're much less upset funding the BBC and, and things like that. But, but anyway, you know, so we had a, I mean, the Middlebrow consensus paralleled the liberal consensus, right? So Eisenhower, who was a Republican, was not that radically far away from FDR. And there was a shared sense that a, an activist government, a regulated government, a government that built infrastructure, roads, interstates, for instance, GI Bill, uh, which, which required high taxes, w- was okay. Similarly, there was a sense that culture was not embarrassing or some sort of seditious impulse and, and that the people who made it were somehow ennobled by doing it. So you even had a, a republic, you know, Eisenhower, I think sent jazz musicians around the world. Uh, uh, Nixon, uh, you know, helped found, uh, you know, arts endowments. Uh, this was, you know, John F. Kennedy had, uh, uh, musicians and, 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 and artists and writers to the white house. He considered, he started, you know, he, he, the, the, the quote, I was at the Kennedy Center in D.C., you know, a few weeks ago, a quote from Kennedy about, you know, the artists and, and thinkers and, and writers are the center of, of civilization. I mean, so there was, there was a kind of mid-century vision. You, you could probably say it goes back to FDR and the WPA. You know, when we were coming out of the, of the Great Depression, the artist, you know, the, the theater actor, you know, uh, these things were, the, the, you know, the, the documentary filmmaker, these things were all considered part of restoring a nation, right? Notice you didn't hear that this time around. <laughs> so what happened? Well, part of what you're, what, what you're talking about is that we lost faith in culture and we lost faith in the people who, who, who worked in it and believed in it. And again, I don't think it's that culture failed or that literature failed. I think there were other forces. I mean, we've had a sort of populist, or faux populist, because it's not genuinely concerned with, with working people or, or poor people. It's a sort of faux populist rebellion against the arts, against expertise. I mean, you know, the, the idea that, that sort of originates in, in Spiro Agnew and, and, and the sort of paranoid side of Nixon, uh, the, the, you know, the, the idea of the pointy-headed intellectual and so on and, and the long-haired, you know, uh, uh, you know, reporter who you can't trust because he's going to sell you out to the communists. You know, that, that's a lineage through conservative, conservative and right-wing politics that went through Dan Quayle. Uh, Newt Gingrich really amplified this. The whole talk of a cultural elite, which is people who aren't like you and me, you can't trust them, uh, they're laughing at you. Uh, and most of these, I mean, I guess I'm in that group. Most of the people who are members of the cultural elite are not living in gated communities. Mm-hmm. They are not buying fancy condos in lower Manhattan like the, the, like the, the billionaire bankers, or they don't have big ranches in Texas like, you know, George W. Bush or, or whatever. These are people who, in some cases, are, you know, living out of their cars. I mean, th- these are people, you know, book reviewers who are crammed into a tiny apartment, you know, that's mostly dominated by books, and they're kind of, you know, making rent just barely uh, uh, every month. I mean, I, I'm a couple steps 
above that. Um, but but I don't have any more you know that much more stability uh, than, than 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 someone in in, in that situation. So it, it it was partly because of a sort of right wing political push against um, against people in the arts and culture. And in some ways, I think the the, the political left or, or you'd call it the cultural left shot itself in the foot with all of this. This uh, denigration of Western Civ and, and and the idea that that literature was was just a uh, the canon was just sort of a construction of, of of white male power or something. I mean, sure, the canon needed to be revised to let more people of color and more women in. There's no you know the, the canon the, the canon of, of of visual arts, the canon of, of 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 literature, you know, without question. But when you start sort of undercutting the very existence of great work. Uh, and, and, and work that's, that's transcendent, that it sort of offers a window into, into the big questions of, uh, of, of, of the human experience. Then you've got real problems. You know, then, as I said, why not just major in computer science and go to, uh, you know, go, go to Facebook and try to come up with a, with a new app? Or why not just go to Wall Street and, and start making, uh, making, tr- you know, trading derivatives, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, chopping up mortgages and, you know, making, Hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, instead of kind of laboring in some uh, some tiny, dark, uh, dank apartment in Brooklyn, trying to write poetry. And when you start telling people this stuff doesn't matter, or that it's it's embarrassing, or or that it's just an exercise in cultural capital, then then why should anybody do it? And, and more important, why should anybody on the outside, say a politician considering funding, or somebody considering you know a wealthy person considering giving money to a museum or or a library or something you know these people have lots of places to park their money you start telling them the culture doesn't matter the message will get through to them loud and clear and i'm afraid that it already has before we sat down to record i was mentioning being at the paley center in beverly hills the other day looking at famous typewriters throughout history orson welles typewriter and uh uh greta garbo's cursive typewriter um which is pretty neat and uh truman capote's typewriter and and the one that i noticed most was uh john updike's typewriter Mm -hmm. of course because of the sheer volume that he wrote that thing had to see a lot of use but they also had some time magazine covers from various eras with john updike on them and Sort of, I was thinking about his role as a writer of that generation, and it's something that I hear from writers more around my age and maybe younger, maybe a little older. I'm 30. Uh, they'll complain, and this is a sentiment you write a bit about in Culture Crash, that they they will complain that in this day and age, in the 21st century, they can't just sort of sit and write all day or sit and write their whole career as they imagine a John Updike did or a Philip Roth did. Um, And in a way, I understand, sure, I guess if if you really want to just spend all your time writing, you wonder why you can't do that so much these days. But also, the bigger question to me is why does somebody who was born in the 1980s want to have the same career as somebody born in the 1920s? It's why There's the sense that there's this 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 resentment that the same careers that one's grandfather had are no longer possible, but I wonder why we expected to live the same lives our grandfathers did. You know what I mean? It seems like why isn't why aren't you looking forward to what's possible next? You know what I mean rather than lamenting that you can't do exactly the same thing as John Updike did. I mean, I make most of my money writing, and that doesn't sound appealing to me. I don't want to spend my time writing. I want right. to do something right. different than other generations did, right? I mean, sure. but there's what's what's the story with the other side of that? You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, you know, 
I'm I'm 45, so I'm kind of you know we Gen Xers are, are kind of in this this funny in between space between the sort of mid century boom, the liberal consensus, the middle brow consensus on one hand, and the sort of post uh, we were educated during the the heyday of postmodernism, and we're now in this sort of post internet 21st century you know, whatever it is. And so I, I and people my age have sort of seen both worlds. We were shaped by, in the simplest sense, we were shaped by print in some ways, and we're now living in a post, post-print era. So we're kind of a hinge generation, and, and, and I call us amphibians. You know, we can sort of swim in, in, in the water, and we can walk on the land, and we're kind of comfortable in both and, and not quite at home in either. I mean, my, my perspective is in some ways that of a, that of someone in his forties. So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you how it looks for me. I mean, I didn't expect everything to be exactly the same. I was, I didn't want it to be, you know, I, you know, my parents are into the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan and Ray Charles. And, um, I was into the clash and, uh, Elvis Costello and Lucinda Williams. I mean, you know, uh, I was shaped by different uh, uh, wins and um, I was very into punk w- when I was in high school, which was a real sort of rejection of you know I was into postmodernism. I fell hard for um, Thomas Pynchon and, the, and the, the novelist like David Foster Wallace who came out of Pynchon. Um, I love you know Zadie Smith's novels. Would we have had you know a, 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 a black woman you know of Jamaican descent? I think uh, as a major author in the fifties, you know probably not. You know there. There's some things that are better, and there's some things that have just evolved. And I, and I, I like Updike a lot, I, you know, but and Cheever and, and that sort of lineage. But I'm also glad that we have, you know, Louise Glick and you know Juno Diaz and right. and David Mitchell and and Rachel Kushner and and, and Amy Bender and you know it's, it's it's not I'm not into saying everything in the culture has declined since the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Right. Um, what I do miss, and if you study cultural history. Uh, in social history, you see that the way artists have made their living uh, has obviously changed since, you know, Sumer and ancient Greece and, and, and Rome and the Middle Ages and so on. It's fascinating. I did a lot of research on this in my book, and I, I, uh, I, I, would, have, I, would, I would really love to write a, another book. <laughs> I'm thinking I would buy it, but another book about the, the history of this, you know, you know, from the caves to the 18th century or something. Um, it's, it's amazing, but so it's never been easy to make a living in the arts and it's never been exactly the way it was a generation before what I, uh, what, what bothers me though, is that there was a way for decades, maybe for a couple centuries, uh, to, if you worked hard, if you were talented, uh, if you got some lucky breaks, et cetera, to have a, a reasonably stable middle-class career in culture. And again, it didn't mean that everybody who wanted to be a novelist could become one. I mean, my first passion as a sort of creative being was, uh, was writing short stories as a kid. And I, that's what I wanted to do, but I realized I was, you know, I just wasn't good enough to, to, to do it for a living. Um, I decided to become a, a journalist who, uh, would write about, uh, novelists and, and, and jazz musicians and filmmakers and so on. And, and I paid all the dues that you do to enter a profession. I went to graduate school, you know, journalism school. I did a bunch of unpaid internships. I slept on my mom's couch, you know, <laughs> after college. I 
worked in a record store with a very expensive, you know, BA, you know, English major while deferring my student loans for years and years. Went to a small paper, you know, then a bigger paper, wrote for free for years to sort of sharpen my, my, uh, sh- you know, sharpen my, uh, my skills as a, as a writer, a thinker, all that. And, and that's not unique to me. I mean, if I was becoming a, a saxophonist or a, a cellist or a poet or whatever, it would be the same path. Uh, um, so it, it's not, and, and I, again, I didn't expect I would have exactly the same career, you know, journalistic career as, say, Russell Baker, you know, just as my uh, friend who's a, a landscape painter who lived in Venice and got flushed out by the economic collapse. I talk about him a little in my, in the beginning of my book. You know, he didn't expect he would have a career exactly like, you know, Jackson Pollock's or Milton Avery's River. What, what we wanted, though, is to make a living in culture in, in some way. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew we wouldn't be uh, wealthy or probably wouldn't be famous. But we could make a living in culture. And, you know, what what I, I hear from young people, my wife is a school librarian and works with, uh, so works mostly with teenagers. And, and I've done some teaching, uh, writing teaching at, at Loyola Marymount. So I was dealing with, you know, 21-year-olds who'd be a decade younger than you, basically. And they don't expect things will be exactly like they were for John Updike, but they'd like to have some time to develop their their voice or learn their instrument or uh, come up with some sort of connection to whatever tradition they want to work in. Uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's something that jazz musicians call woodshedding, you know, sort of going away and being kind of, you know, kind of in, in sort of in exile for a while and, and learning the, the, the history of what you're doing, getting good at your instrument, and then hopefully getting great at your instrument and coming up with some personal take on it. Every artist or craftsman needs to do at least a little of that, and and then you want to, if if you've gotten past certain hurdles and achieved and, and committed and all those things, built an audience and and, and, and so on, you want to have uh, uh, some some time to actually do what you're there to do. You want to be able to write poems at least some of the time. You want to be able to uh, play guitar, whatever, write songs, write novels, uh, design uh, buildings. Um, and if you're spending all your time worried about, uh, paying the rent, I mean, of course, finance, financial considerations have always been important for artists of any kind, but if you are so pressed against the wall that you're constantly anxious and can't, can't concentrate on, on, on your field. And if you're, you know, if you're in this sort of post label, post publishing house, et cetera, free-for-all, free-agent world where you're constantly tweeting, constantly on Facebook, you're constantly kick-starting, running around with your hat out, you know, begging for five bucks here, 20 bucks here, having to repay people with free concerts at their house, right. signed copies of the CD. I mean, some of that is good, and there's been some good work that's come out of the crowdfunding model, and I, I'm happy that Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian got, got to make a movie, and he did it from... Uh, uh, crowdfunding and, and other you know serious artists have done it, but the people I know who are doing that stuff, in some cases are trying and not getting any. You know they're, they're sort of they're almost there and they don't get their funding and, and then it's over, right. or they're devoting all of their time to passing the hat and a lot right. less of their time to actually making their film, uh, writing their songs, uh, you know painting right. uh, a canvas. So when it becomes a pure, change is fine. We expect change, and someone my age who, who 
who graduated college around 1990 has lived through incredible social and cultural and economic changes, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the coming of the computer, the Reagan revolution, uh, the death of print, you know, all this stuff happened just in my lifetime. Uh, but we expected it. In some cases, we enjoyed it. We did not expect it to eradicate our way of life. Right. That, that's when it becomes sort of a little more troubling. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. You know, talking about the artists who have to struggle to do the kickstarting and the tweeting and the Facebooking and whatnot. Of course, you write about them as well in the book. I understand it when described that way, but my own career involves no small amount of tweeting, posting to Facebook, kickstarting. But one difference is I don't, maybe it's just the time I started, it doesn't feel like I've had to force what I was already doing into that model. It feels like mm -hmm. tweeting, kickstarting is actually an organic part. It's as much what I'm doing as, I don't, I don't even see the product I make, whether it's a podcast or something I'm writing or the way that I'm promoting it, although I don't even think of it as promotion, the whole like social media ecosystem, kickstarting ecosystem and the stuff I'm making, it's all kind of, it's very hard for me to separate them and to say they're different things, sure. but I don't know. Do you see that as a generational shift in mindset? I mean, whether you say this is a pain in the ass I got to do to keep doing right. what I was doing, or it's just, this is the world I designed what I designed my career to be in. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I think it is a generational issue to some extent. It's also a temperamental issue. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I have a book out called Culture Crash and I tweet at the Misread City, which is the name of my, my anthology about LA. And I kind of like it. And I've been going to bookstores where nobody pays me to be there. Um, I flew to the East Coast to do events. Uh, I go into radio to, um, uh, do interviews, which I enjoy. Nobody pays me for this. When I flew to the East Coast, like most writers these days, I paid every dime of it myself, every hotel, every meal, every uh, flight, Greyhound bus, etc. Um, I kind of like spreading the word for the things I do because I, I care about this this message. I care about the people I'm writing about, and I want to spread the word. Similarly, um, a musician who has a new album or is doing a tribute to Nina Simone or something wants to get out there and, um, and, and play and spread the word and, 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 and so on. So it's not like, uh, you know, social media or doing a busking tour or something is necessarily demeaning or mm -hmm. awful. But I know plenty of people who, I mean, the person who, who said this most eloquently in my book is, is a former Angelino, uh, Stu, the, the main guy in the band, the Negro problem who lives in, He's now he's now sort of a he's a playwright and he does a lot of different things uh, as well as being a musician. But he lives in a building in Brooklyn with all kinds of uh, uh, artists and and experimental jazz people and pop people and sort of all over the the map. And he says the uh, every conversation he has with them, no matter what generation, no matter how close to the mainstream they are, whether they're black and white, you know, woman or man, young or old, is about how kickstarting and crowdfunding and Facebooking is taking up all of their time and they're struggling to, to, uh, so, you know, it, I, I'm heartened to hear that you don't feel like it's, it's corroding or, or, or cutting into your, you know, so anyway, I'm comfortable doing this stuff. I mean, I'm happy to, you know, send out a tweet about, uh, something that angers or delights me, you know, it, but, Partly because I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm supporting my book right now. I'm, I'm, I, I, this is a two-week window where I'm kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, basically busking, and, and, sure. and that's cool. I can do it. I enjoy it. But at some point, I've got to get back to what I do. The other point, which, which I think is, is at least as important, is that 
you know, I'm sort of an extrovert. I mean, I like going into a room and reading and writing and thinking for hours and hours and hours, but I'm an outgoing person for the most part. And if I, you know, if, if, if being an artist or a musician or whatever requires you to be constantly on, constantly on stage, constantly busking, constantly promoting yourself, you're going to lose, and you're already, it's already happening, you're going to lose people who are introverts and who have sort of a more monastic temperament. I mean, think about, you know, like I can't imagine the history of music without John Coltrane, but Coltrane was a, was a quiet guy who practiced his saxophone for, for nine hours a day, wrote a lot of important music, you know, played with, with, with other musicians to, to develop the sort of empathy. That, I mean, he was devoted to his art in a very deep way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we think of Jimi Hendrix as a sort of wild man, but Hendrix, Hendrix could only revolutionize the guitar by devoting himself to it and to the history of it, spending a lot of time playing. Mm-hmm. Think of Elizabeth Bishop, the poet. I can't imagine Elizabeth Bishop Facebooking all the time, <laughs> you know, and tweeting every little thought she had, you know. The, the old model where a, a, an artist would go underground for a while and then come up some of the time to to publish their poem, their, their, their poetry collection, to do readings, to go on a tour of rock clubs or jazz clubs or whatever, uh, that, you know, that system of sometime deep in, in doing the soul work and sometimes out in the public sphere on stage – that provided a sort of balance that allowed extroverts and introverts to be part of the part of the mix. If you have to be on all the time and you know sharing on uh, on Facebook and Twitter, you know some people can do that, but you're going to lose. You know, I mean, would we have had Miles Davis? I mean, come on, I can't imagine the history of music without Miles Davis. Uh, I don't know that we we would have had that career if he had to constantly be. Uh, sort of, you know, blowing his horn for for his own work all of the time. And what what do you think about cities in general as as a factor in all this? I mean, as whether a place to observe this or whether a place to be creating culture, a place to be distributing, uh, gatekeeping culture. What do cities have to do with it? Yeah, I mean, cities are are at the absolute center of of the the questions I'm asking uh, for 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 culture crash. I mean, I, I did an event uh, at the L.A. Public Library, a loud series, and and part of the, the the group of us on stage was the architect Barbara Bester, who I interview for the for the for the book. I do a chapter on architecture, and she, she wrote, she's written a book called Bohemian Modern, and she's a sort of Silver Lake based architect who who designs sort of how, you know, cool modernist houses, but also, you know, record labels. She did the Intelligentsia Coffee and Sunset Junction. And she's very, she, she compares herself to a locavore, you know, uh, in, in her, her resonance with, with, with LA's East Side. And she, having her on that panel made me realize, but I hadn't really noticed it before, but it made me realize that a lot of my book is about urban spaces and the importance of urban spaces. And, uh, the importance of cities and, and the sort of dynamic way they work. I mean, whether it's a writer or a visual artist or a musician or an actor or a dancer or something, these people tend to come together and meet in urban spaces. And they tend, you know, if they're preparing, you know, if they're a band that, that that's getting ready to play, if, if if they're a theater troupe or or a dance company, they're meeting in a physical space, usually in a city. I mean, you can have art and culture anywhere in a small town in the countryside, but having central places where people come together, talk about their work, and collaborate is crucial. So in my 
in my book, I do a, I mean, again, this runs this, these questions and, 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 and tensions run through the whole book, but the, uh, and the high cost of rent in, in cities that have been traditionally traditional cultural centers, you know, New York, Boston, Cambridge, uh, Bay Area, uh, LA, et cetera, uh, the cost of living in these places and, and the way rents have, 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 have come unhinged is a big, uh, challenge to, to creative people. But, but more specifically, I did an opening chapter. I think it's called When Culture Works or something like that. And I, I look at the way different artistic scenes developed in three different cities. I use kind of as the model, the, uh, the, the CBGB scene in, in, in 70s New York that David Byrne of Talking Heads describes in, in a book he wrote about music. And, um, and he talks about how punk and new wave kind of came together. Blondie, television, Talking Heads, uh, Ramones, etc. And I wanted to, to, to use his kind of lens to look at three places, three post-war cities, and see what went right, you know, to make a cultural scene come together and, and that employed, you know, you know, for which artists could make a living and which an audience was engaged and, and, and see what were the elements that were necessary. So I, I looked at three different times and places. I looked at uh, 50s Boston, Cambridge, the confessional poetry scene that was centered around Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath. I looked at 60s Los Angeles and the visual art scene that included Ed Ruscha and, and Ed Keenholtz and was based around um, um, uh, Ferris Gallery. And then I looked at 70s Austin and the, the alt-country scene that was sort of sparked by, by Willie Nelson that, that led to the alt-country movement and people like Lucinda Williams and, and Alejandro Escovedo and, and so on. And that chapter was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. I talked to a lot of people. I read a lot of books and tried to get at what makes this, what makes this happen. And then how does it sort of cease to happen? And uh, that was in some ways my favorite part of the book because uh, favorite part to write because you see things going right and you see uh, artists meeting and engaging and connecting and, and innovating, collaborating and all of that stuff. And uh, I came up with some conclusions that, 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 that are in that book. Uh, and, you know, I guess my hope is that somehow moving forward in this new 21st century, you know, post-internet world, we find a way... Um, to, to, to make it happen again and to keep happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've got to take an honest look about what's, what's going on right now. The invisible hand is not going to save us. You know, we, we can't just sit back and say that the Internet will democratize cultural life and, and it'll just happen automatically because history always moves toward happy outcomes. It doesn't. You know, people have to take an honest look at, at, at what's going on around them and they need to commit uh, if, if they value things. So, so my hope is that, that people will... Will uh, look these problems sort of square in the in, in the face and 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 uh, and try to move us forward in a way that that restores a a, a creative middle class and restores uh, uh, the, the lives of artists and, and, and craftsmen. We mentioned you might mention the painter friend who got sort of pushed out of Venice, and we talk about the video stores and bookstores that have closed in Los Angeles and various other elements of this city where it seems like you can see a lot of this cultural shift you write about going on. Los Angeles seems like a, it seems like a clear window to watch this happening. I mean, what, what about Los Angeles makes it, makes it a good city, if you think it is, to observe this 21st century cultural change in? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, California has always been, you know, in sort of myth and reality, kind of the, a, a bellwether state, a sort of 
you know, we used to use the phrase in the 90s, cutting edge, you know, or leading edge, something that in some ways is ahead of the rest of the, the Western world in, in, uh, in, in, in transformations that will, will eventually shape the rest of the, say, rest of the United States, I mean, England, Europe, etc. Um, that's, that's doubly true with all the things we're talking about. California has a large and complex and diversified creative class. It also has, with Silicon Valley and to some extent, what they call Silicon Beach in Santa Monica, Venice. It has a, a high-tech uh, world uh, uh, as well here here in Greater LA. Um, it you know so so part of what some people find interesting about my book is that it's a book about culture and about a life in culture that's mostly based in California and Los Angeles. So I write about Austin, I write about Boston, Cambridge, I write about New York, I write about a bunch in Britain to some extent. I write about a bunch of places, but. It's very much shaped by me having lived in California for, for two decades and, and seeing changes. So what you get in, I mean, not to, you know, obviously we all know this in 2015 that Los Angeles has amazing arts institutions, whether it's the art schools or the LA Phil or the LACMA or the MOCA or, or, or whatever. And there's some wonderful bookstores, record stores, et cetera. So there's a lot of stuff here. It, it provides a, a, a kind of microcosm you can, you can observe any art form you're interested in in some way here. So here's, but, but here's the, the other reason why LA is, is especially acute, you might say, is it has among the highest cost of living in the US. San Francisco's is a little worse, New York is a little worse, but LA is even more, uh, LA, there's something more difficult about LA even in those places, which is that the, the economic infrastructure that supports creative people and 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 non-creative people is weaker and more um, more feeble than those in those cities. In other words, you know, the New York Times has had problems. Obviously, the New York Times is still a robust and and well-staffed paper with a with a Sunday magazine with a with a book review. Uh, they do all kinds of events. Uh, they do incredible foreign stuff. I don't mean the New York Times is perfect, but you compare the New York Times, which is owned by a family, whatever its faults, a family dedicated to journalism and culture. I mean, the New York Times helps sort of shape arts coverage and, and you know journalistic arts coverage in the states by inventing the arts and leisure section and so on, covering theater and these other things, the, the art museum world, the classic music world. Uh, compare that to the LA Times, where I used to work, which is still a very good paper. I get it every day, or at least a good paper. The LA Times was owned by the Chandlers, who are sort of tight-fisted, borderline libertarian rich people, who, who after the Otis Chandler era, who was a great editor and apparently a great guy, had zero commitment to journalism, zero commitment to the arts, zero commitment really to Los Angeles. Many of them have left the city. These were just the worst kind of tight-fisted, selfish, rich people. They sold it, and I'm going to stop, but they sold it to a bunch of fools who ran Tribune, which was an unimaginative company of of sort of numbskulled, you know, bean counters. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, they sold it to Sam Zell, who not only hates newspapers, but hates journalists, doesn't seem interested in Los Angeles, and is just a sort of nasty, you know, nasty little weasel. So so the institutions, that the LA Times is, is a specifically unpleasant example, but basically if you don't have, you know, uh, uh, institutions and families and so on that stand up for these things, 
uh, they'll they'll go away. So, so what so what you have it's, again, it's not just about journalism. You you have people who are who are happy and have careers in the arts here in Los Angeles. We have you know. Two, at least two great conductors between Dudamel and Esapekka Salin, and I feel very grateful that that they are here. And you have Annie Philbin running the Hammer. I mean, there's great cultural institutions and great cultural talent in Los Angeles. I don't want to sound like I'm dissing this, this you know city I've been in for for 20 years or almost 20 years. But um, the uh, the problem is the, the 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 economic infrastructure in LA is just not as strong as New York and the Bay Area. The cost of living is almost as bad. To make a living in culture uh, and afford to live here when the average you know, two-bedroom apartment is something like $2,400 a month, it, it's, it's, it's basically doubled since I've, since I've been here. Uh, it's just going in the wrong direction. And you know, the, my wife and I and, and our son were, were flushed out of our, our, our little cottage in Glendale by the uh, – by the by, the recession and by a bank that would negotiate with us, and by the LA Times laying me off, and we thought we were told by everybody, you know, you get a lot of sort of optimistic BS when you go through tough times. People are trying to help, and I understand it, but they say, oh well, a lot of people are going through this, um, and the economy is flat, so rents will be down. You'll be able to get something <laughs> due to the economic structure, and again, laws, you know, um, uh, economic and political uh, structures. Uh, that, that benefit the wealthy and, and benefit you know landlords. Uh, when we got kicked out of our house, uh, we found a decent little place, a little cottage in Burbank. Uh, but we we are paying probably fifty percent more than we expected to. There was just no other option to try to have a middle class life and be near our kids' school. And uh, this is again, it's not just about me. This is true of everybody I know who lost their house in in the in the in the crash. You know, they've ended up. Uh, renting and they're they're paying more and they're getting less and and again this isn't going away it's not suddenly becoming um, it's not like the system will just take care of itself or the magic of the marketplace will solve these problems which is what you hear uh, from people so so Los Angeles has a really rich cultural life but it also in in sort of economic terms it demonstrates the the contradictions and, and tensions here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it may do that better than, than any other city. And because of that, I think it was, it was uh, the right subject or the right kind of vantage point for the book, though, I, again, I ranged to Britain, Texas, and, and a number of other places. But Los Angeles is, and California more broadly, are, are crucial to the, to the book Culture Crash, absolutely. And it's here in near Los Angeles, definitely California, Burbank. I've been sitting today on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, talking with Scott Timberg. He is the co-editor of The Misread City, New Literary Los Angeles, and the author of the new book, Culture Crash, The Killing of the Creative Class. Scott, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Colin. Appreciate it. Again, it's been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at losangelesreviewofbooks.com. Thanks. Thanks.